Well, good morning. Uh, I am so excited uh, to be here with you all this morning. Also excited to be joined by everybody watching online uh, right now. Uh, like the video said, this is a special place for me because even though I live uh, in Charleston right now, uh, I grew up here in Hurricane. I'm a proud uh, Hurricane High alumni, alumnus, whatever that word is. Yeah, that's right. Uh, my wife taught at Winfield Middle School too for a couple years when we moved down here, so we got both sides of that in our family. It's okay. Uh, and then also my parents uh, actually go to church uh, here too. So uh, even though I'm from Charleston, this is a very special place for me, and I'm so excited to be here uh, this morning. I will say, though, that it can be a little awkward, like speaking in the town that you grew up in, though. It can lead to some interesting uh, dynamics. So I'll give you an example of one of these. Uh, you all know Carol Young as the incredibly talented uh, keyboard player that plays here on Sunday mornings, right? I know Carol Young as Mrs. Young because she was my uh, elementary school music teacher back at West Hills Elementary. And I say it's an interesting dynamic because the absolute most trouble I've ever gotten in at any level of school happened in her class. And what happened is, and it's kind of ironic because like music is such an important part of my life now, but back then, like I was not my strong suit. And so, you know, I was sitting there taking a test in her class. And I'm looking at this test and thinking, I don't know any of these answers. And it dawned on me as a little fifth grader, well, I'm taking this test and I don't know the answers, but that person's also taking the same test and they know the answers. <laughs> so I'll just borrow a couple. Oh, okay. Oh, erase, go, erase that too, okay, yep. I got caught. I was not discreet about it, okay? So I got caught. Now, in what I, now I recognize was a great teaching move. Back at the time, I thought this was really a terrible thing, but now I recognize the wisdom in this. What she did is she made me write a note home to my parents uh, explaining what I had done and that I was supposed to get my parents to sign it and bring it back, okay? So I did what any, you know, fifth grade boy who was caught red-handed and had to face the consequences of his poor decisions would do. I forged my mom's signature. <laughs> And I'm sure looking back on it, I mean, I thought it looked great. I'm sure it was like terrible, right? So I'd give it to her confidently the next day. And yeah, you know, here's the, here's the, here's the sheet. And so I go and I think I got off scot-free, right? Well, a couple hours later, I get called to the principal's office. And my mom was also a teacher at this time. She taught at a different school. And I walked into the principal's office and uh, the principal had my mom on speakerphone with, with Miss Young sitting there. And they, they're just like, hey, we just want to ask you some questions. Did Keith bring a note home last night? And I'm just sitting there thinking, I am dead. So... Um, I don't think I ever saw the playground at West Hayes until like adulthood. I mean, I got in so much trouble for this for, for so many years. And so I tell you this story for two points. One, uh, cheating, cheaters never win. Okay, that's point number one. Uh, but point two is, you know, if you happen to know me back when I was young and dumb, uh, and you're looking up here and you're thinking, what in the world is he doing up there? Like, it is a fair question, okay? The only thing I ask from you this morning is don't hold anything against me that I did before the age of 18, okay? Anything after that, I'm totally responsible for. Back then, just let's just pretend it didn't happen and don't judge me by that this morning, okay? Fair enough? All right, but, you know, on a serious note, um, I say this is a special place for me, and it really is because, you know, I've, I've been at River Ridge Charleston campus for the past 10 years, and to watch what God is doing uh, through this church in my hometown, it has been so exciting to watch. I mean, I've been praying for you all. There's so many people down there praying for this, this church and praying for the people here and, and encouraging and rooting for, the, for what God is doing down here. And it has just been so awesome to see how that's played. I mean, just look at this place and then also to know about the plans that we have uh, for Barbersville. It's just so exciting to be a part of that. And, it's, uh, and I'm just humbled to be up here this morning. Um, 
I, will want to, I do want to say one other thing, too, kind of along those lines, and I want to say something that you probably have never heard from this stage before because nobody else uh, could say it. It would be awkward if they did, but I'll say it because I want to make sure that you all know this. You all have phenomenal leadership here, right? Phenomenal leadership. I mean, I, I, you all see everything that goes on up here, and, and it's great, but I mean, I've sat in meetings with the leadership here, and those guys are awesome people. I mean, their hearts are in exactly the right place, and God is using them to do great things. So I hope that you all uh, know that and appreciate that. And I'll tell you too, man, they have hard jobs, right? So I would urge you all, urge you all to love them and support them and pray for them and encourage them whenever possible. I'm sure that they would greatly appreciate that, and we know that they all deserve that too. Yeah, that's worth clapping for. And like I said, I can say that. If one of them said it, it would sound like they're like whining, right? But it's, we know it's true. Okay. Um, so we are in our summer sermon series uh, called The Other 316s. And what we're doing with this series is, you know, we all know John 316, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And so John 316 is one of the most well-known verses in the Bible. But if you look at the other 316s, there's some really great passages in that. And so what we're doing this summer uh, is we're going through the other 316s and looking at some of the other great things that are in these other 316 passages. And then so this morning, we're going to be looking at James uh, 316, which says this, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. And some of your translations may use the word envy there. But what we're going to do over the next 25 to 30 minutes or so is we're going to be breaking this down. And we're going to be first talking about jealousy and the problem with jealousy and what it does to our lives. And then we're going to switch and we're going to talk about selfish ambition and talk about the danger of that. And then we're going to look at really these two things I think are, are symptoms of the common of, of one disease. And we're going to talk about what that disease is. And then we're going to close with looking at what the Bible says about how to address these areas in our life. So it's going to feel kind of like three little mini sermons, but at the end, I'm going to tie it all together, okay? So I'll pray for us now before we jump into the Word. God, this morning, I pray that as we look at your Word, God, uh, that you uh, just speak to us and help us each individually just get what you want us uh, to get out of uh, the message this morning, God. I pray that you speak to us and that we open our hearts, open our ears to listen to what you have to say. All these things in your son's name. Amen. All right, so let's start with jealousy. And, you know, I, I don't know about you all, but I really struggle with jealousy. And, you know, I get on Facebook, and I'm sitting there scrolling through my feed, and I see the post from that family that's on their like fifth vacation of the year. And they're posting all these pictures of like all the kids are happy in these beautiful locations with this great food. And I'm sitting there like on my couch and my kids are driving me crazy. And I'm just like, comment, have fun paying off your credit card the next five years, backspace, backspace, backspace. Have fun on your trip, thumbs up emoji, beach emoji, comment, jerks, you know, that's what you think. And I say that kind of jokingly, but if I'm being honest, like, that really messes with me, you know? I mean, I'm, we're at a season of our life right now where um, we can't really go on any crazy elaborate vacations. And then I see all these other people doing all these great things, and, man, it makes me mad. I get mad. I have a negative reaction to this, a very unhealthy reaction to this. And then what happens is I start to look at this, and then, it, you know, it makes me, I, I get mad first at them. They didn't do anything to me, but for some reason I'm mad at them. And then I start to feel bad for myself and start to think, oh, woe is me, poor me. I, have, I don't have any great thing. I got to just do all these boring things, you know, and that's my reaction. That's a very unhealthy reaction. 
And I don't know if that's something you all can relate to. Maybe it's not vacations. Maybe it's something like a car. You know, you're driving some beater 250,000 miles, and your neighbor pulls in with some brand-new loaded pickup truck, and you're like, mm, I hope you back into a mailbox, you know, or something, right? <laughs> but what about your work situation? You ever feel like your career is just stuck in neutral, and then there's somebody over there that just every, they're racing right to the top, and everything seems to be going right for them, and you're just like, ah, come on. What about your kids? Maybe you look at other people's kids, and you're like, I really wish that my, my son was as good in school as, as that person's kid, or, or I wish my daughter was athletic, as athletic as somebody else's. You get jealous of other people's kids. Or maybe it's a spouse. Maybe you look at somebody else's husband, and you think, man, I wish my husband treated me like that. Or you look at somebody else's wife, and you say, man, I wish my, my wife looked like that. I mean, we have these things. I'm not saying that personally. I'm saying that might be something that you all struggle with. we will be very clear about that. So subconsciously, though, I mean, jealousy creeps into our lives. And it creeps into our lives, and when it does, it is toxic. And I don't know about you, but, like, it always seems like it happens at the worst time, too. Like, I'm already down about something, and then something happens, and I start getting jealous, and it just makes wherever I am, it makes it that much worse. And so what we know about jealousy, the problem with jealousy is it makes us feel lousy. Jealousy makes us feel lousy. And jealousy really isn't ever about the what either. And what I mean by that is I don't think any of us would say, you know what, we don't want anything good to happen to anybody, right? That's not, that's not what we say. The problem is, is we don't want something good to happen to that person. It's that person. It's not a what issue. It's a who issue. I heard one pastor say one time that jealousy comes with a name, and so what we're going to do is we're going to look um, at a story in the Bible where this comes to life. We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 18. Before we look at the passage, though, I want to give you some historical context for what we're getting ready to read. And so at this point in Israel's history, they are ruled by King Saul. And King Saul had had a bunch of military victories against all these other people, these enemies of Israel. But there was one group, the Philistines, where he just could not get the upper hand on the Philistines. And the Philistines were the arch enemy of Israel and really a threat to Israel. And so what happens, and you, you, it's one of the most well-known stories in the Bible, but there's a story where uh, the Israelites are camped at one end of the valley and the Philistines are camped at another. And this giant comes out from the Philistine camp named Goliath and makes a challenge. He says, hey, if anybody comes and fights me, you pick your best warrior, come and fight me. If they win, we'll become your servants. But if I win, you become our servant. And King Saul, who's the person that should have answered that call and went out and fight him, doesn't. And so for the next 40 days, nobody from the Israelite camp goes out and challenges Goliath. So Goliath comes out and he's taunting the Israelites and taunting God until finally this shepherd boy named David hears him. And David gets so mad because he is insulting God. And David says, I'll fight him. And they're like, you're nuts. So David goes out and he would use his sling and picks up a rock and uses a sling and hits Goliath right in the head, knocks him out and runs up and Uses, pulls out his sword and chops his head off using glass sword. I think that's like the coolest part of the story. And it's a great story, and I'm really oversimplifying what happens. But the point is this. The point is this was an amazing thing that God had done. I mean, there's no question that this was God's doing, right? I mean, some little shepherd boy can't go out and defeat this giant. Clearly God's work. And if you look at... Um, okay, so then we're going to look at verse uh, 4, 5, sorry. 1 Samuel 18. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops, 
and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the woman came out from the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing and with joyful songs and timbrels and lyres. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but with me only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. And so the point here is this, is that out of all the people who should have been happy about what happened here, it was Saul, right? Everybody else was happy. Saul's officers were pleased. The troops were pleased. It says the women were pleased. And guys, if the women are pleased, everybody should be happy, right? But what about Saul? The king, the person that benefits the most from having his arch enemy defeated, where's his heart? It says Saul was angry. And he directed that anger not towards the women who were singing, or he directed it towards David. Because God had given David something that Saul wanted. And so what you see over the next 13 chapters of this book is that Saul just becomes obsessed with getting David. And he spends the rest of his life and loses everything. He loses his life. He loses most of his family. He loses his kingdom out of this obsession over David. And see, jealousy had a name for King Saul, and that name was David. And we see here that jealousy can become all-consuming if we let it into our lives. I mean, maybe you're not literally chasing after somebody for 13 chapters of the Bible trying to get them back, but we can see that it's all-consuming and the problem that comes with that. We'll switch gears now to selfish ambition. I want to start with a story. Many years ago, there was an angel. This just wasn't any angel. This was a special angel. This angel was perfect. This angel was wise. This angel lived in Eden itself. This angel was known as the day star, and it was a cherub, which means it was one of God's closest angels. But this angel wasn't content just being a special angel. This angel, out of his beauty and splendor, became proud. And this angel said, I am going to ascend above the tops of the clouds, and I'm going to place my throne above the stars of God. He said that I am going to make myself like God himself. And so out of this, God kicks this angel out of heaven. And today we know this angel as Satan, Satan right? And I want to start with this story to make this point. It's when James 3.16 says that jealousy and selfish ambition leads to every vile practice. Like, I don't think that's an exaggeration. Satan was ambitious enough to think that he could become higher than God. And out of all the things that corrupted Satan, out of all the things that corrupted him, it was selfish ambition that led to his downfall. And so let me ask you this question. Like, what do we think about ambition? Do we avoid it? Do we tolerate it? Do we ignore it? Do we encourage it? I mean, the jealousy is kind of an easy one. If I say, hey, is jealousy a bad thing? I think everybody would say, like, yeah, jealousy is not a good thing, right? But if I say ambition, I mean, what about ambition? Is ambition wrong? Is ambition a sin? Is there bad ambition? Is there good ambition? What's the difference? I mean, we live in 21st century America. Like, that's what makes us great is we have goals. We work hard. We obtain those goals, right? Or like if you're sitting in a, an employment, in a job review and your boss says, you know what? You're ambitious. You would say, thank you. Or if a teacher says, you know what, your child has ambition, you would say, that's a good thing, right? I mean, I would say that's a good thing. And so though what happens is we read verses like Galatians 5, 19, like this. 
The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, sin. Impurity and debauchery, sin. Idolatry and witchcraft, sin. Hatred, sin. Discord, sin. Jealousy, sin. Fits of rage, sin. Selfish ambition, yeah. Dissensions, sin. Factions, sin. Envy, sin, drunkenness, sin, orgies, sin, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those sexually immoral and drunken people who practice witchcraft, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. What about the selfish ambition part? We read right over that one. You know, they say that you should know, you can know somebody by the company they keep. And here you have a list of some of the worst sins the Bible talks about. And selfish ambition is right there on that list. So I think it's maybe a time we start to consider selfish ambition by the company it keeps. Let's look now at Luke chapter 22. And this is a verse, this is a passage that we read a lot. You're going to know this passage very well. But I want you to pretend you have never heard it before, and I want you to pretend you're, like, put yourself in the, in the story and just listen and be thinking about picturing what's going on here. Um, so this is uh, chapter, Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They begin to question among themselves which of them might be who would do this. And so we know this passage is the communion story. We read it a lot every time we take communion. And so I said to picture, the, picture this as you're reading it. And like, I don't know about you, but when I picture this moment, I picture this just really emotional, intimate moment. I mean, Jesus and his disciples have spent all this time together. And this is kind of like the pinnacle moment where they come together and they're sitting down, they're having this last meal together. And Jesus is telling them, hey, before I go, let me, let me cue in on some really important things here. There's going to be a new covenant. A new covenant is coming. And he's going through the Passover script, but he completely changes the script. And I can picture the disciples just kind of being like, what is going on? And this really special moment, right? Now, I have read this passage, I don't know how many times, and I can tell you, I have never picked up on what comes next until I was preparing for this message, okay? I've never noticed this. But in the midst of this incredibly emotional moment, let's look at the next verse, verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered the greatest. Are you kidding me? I mean, Jesus is over there talking about this new covenant, and you're worried about who of you is going to be the greatest? I mean, you read that, and you're like, what is, what is going on? But I think I know what happened here, and when you think of it like this, it kind of makes a lot more sense, and I would probably be doing the exact thing, same thing the disciples were. You see, Jesus is up there talking about this new covenant that's coming, but he's also talking about the fact that there's, he, won't, uh, he won't take the drink until the, his kingdom comes, Right? And so I know the disciples are sitting there thinking, they're like, finally, this kingdom is coming. Within a year from now, this kingdom is going to come. And you know what? Kingdoms have hierarchies. So Jesus, in this hierarchy, where do I fit? Am I up here? Am I down here? Can we talk about where I am in this hierarchy of your kingdom that's coming? And you look at that and you're like, I mean, I can see that. I can see how that would be something they're focused on because of ambition. And so I read these two stories to make this one point. I read the story about King Saul, and I read the story about the uh, Last Supper to make this point. Is what do these two stories have in common? 
What do these stories have in common? In both of these stories, you have some of the most important moments in the Bible. In the Saul story, you have the time when shepherd David goes to take that first step to becoming King David. And King David is one of the most influential people in the history of Israel, did so many great things for Israel. And in the other hand, you have the Last Supper meal, which is where Jesus is literally changing the script and really telling them that, hey, there's gonna be a new covenant coming. God is at work doing this incredible thing. In both of these monumental moments in the Bible, monumental moments in world history, I mean, you cannot understate how important these moments are. What is occupying the hearts of the people who have front row seats to what God is doing? In Saul's case, jealousy. In case of the disciples, you see selfish ambition. And I think that's why it's such a problem for us is because this is what happens is God can be working and doing incredible things in people's lives. God can be blessing somebody and moving in incredible, incredible ways. But instead of sitting there and appreciating the blessing, appreciating what God is doing, we're sitting there saying, God, what about me? I, I would like that too, God. I deserve that. That's not fair. Why, why can't I have some of that, God? Jealousy and selfish ambition also have the danger of dividing Christians because our brothers and sisters could be, enjoy, could be enjoying a blessing that God is giving them. And instead of celebrating the blessing with them, we're bitter and we get mad at them because God gave them something that we want. I'll be especially vulnerable, Hill. You know, in, in terms of church leadership, this is a really hard one because you see churches, you see another church somewhere else that's this awesome things happening in your head you know hey God's kingdom is a, this is a great thing for God's kingdom this is a good thing but in your heart you have to look at that and you say well I mean it's a very human emotion you're like well what about us you know it's so hard to not to deal with these things in our hearts and so really at its core jealousy is when someone else has something that we want for ourselves. And selfish ambition is when we want something for ourselves that we don't want someone else to have. And so I said that I, when I started that I, th I think that both of these conditions are symptoms of the same disease. And that disease is this, it's self. And here's the problem with jealousy and selfish ambition is they are so such an affront to the gospel because the gospel is inherently selfless. The gospel was God saying, I love you so much that I'm going to go to the cross without regard for anything personal consequences for that. The cross is the most selfless action that we can possibly imagine. In John 15, 12, Jesus said, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. I have loved you selflessly, Therefore, we are to love others selflessly. So if you look at the antidote for this, Paul sets it out in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. So how do we challenge our hearts and get out of this state of jealousy and selfish ambition. We value other people's success over our own success. 
We value other people's blessings over our own blessings. We celebrate each other's wins more than we celebrate our own. Author Annie Downs uh, explained it in a way that I thought was such a great illustration. She She says this. She says, you know, we look at life like a game of shoots and ladders. And if you've ever played shoots and ladders, it's a terrible game. It's got to be the most unfair and just, it's a stupid game. I'll even say it that way. Stupid game, right? Because what happens in shoots and ladders is you can be all the way down here, or you can be all the way at the top, almost getting ready to win, right? And then you roll a six. And in every other game that exists, a six is a great roll, right? Not shoots and ladders. Because what can happen with your six? You can land on that shoot. Next thing you know, you're down at space 24. And you're like, what just happened, right? And meanwhile, the person you're playing with, who is probably a child, by the way, rolls a one and their one gets them on this ladder and all of a sudden they're at space 84 and you're like how is that fair but that's how we look at life too because life's like that in life we can do every single thing right everything right but you know what you may land on a shoot and you may drop straight down and you may not win despite doing everything right And meanwhile, somebody else can do everything wrong, everything wrong. But somehow they get lucky and they land on a ladder and next thing you know, they're up here. And we look at that and we're like, how is that fair? And when we look at life like a game of shoots and ladders, it's so hard not to be drawn into jealousy because we're jealous of other people's moves up and down the board and we're not drawn into selfish ambition because we wanna win the game. It's a competition, we wanna win. And what she says is, let's not look at life like a game of shoots and ladders. Instead, let's look at life like a game of solitaire. Because with solitaire, and what she actually says is what she encourages people to do is to buy a deck of cards, 52 cards, and to take that deck and with a Sharpie, write on it things that are unique to your life. Some of them good, some of them bad. Because then what you do is once you write all these unique things about your circumstances on these cards, is now you have a deck, and that is your deck. Your deck doesn't look like anybody else's deck. This is the deck that you have to play. And in solitaire and in life, your goal is to play the best game that you can with the cards that you have. And we know when we play solitaire, is you might not win. You might win. You don't really know. But the point is to play the best game that you can with what you have and while you're sitting there playing your game of solitaire somebody else can be over there playing their game of solitaire and it doesn't matter the games aren't connected if they have something good happen in their game you can say great I'm happy for you because it's not a competition and so what happens is if we look at life like a game of solitaire instead not like a game of shoots and ladders is it allows us to be fans of everybody else around us we can cheer for them We can support them. We can encourage them because it's not a competition. We can even help them win to our own detriment. Maybe you have a card in your hand that's a really good card. It's a good card you can play. You look over and they might need this card more than I do. So here, you take this card. It's going to hurt my game. It's going to help your game. And if we can look at life like game, playing a game of solitaire or not like playing a game of shoots and ladders, it can have a ton of, of benefits. 
One is it's going to help us have a more positive outlook on life. It's going to have a more positive outlook on life because it's not a competition. It's going to help us with our contentment and appreciating what we have. You've all heard the quote that comparison is the thief of joy. Man, I think that is so stinking true. Because I don't know how many times in my life, things are going great. Like, I'm happy. Things are going great. I'm rolling along. And I look over and somebody else, I'm like, wait, maybe things aren't that great. They have, I want that. My things aren't any good anymore. I want what they have. And that comparison has robbed me of the joy of experiencing the good things in my own life. The other thing I think about is like, how much more fun would life be if we all did this, you know? If we all supported each other and encouraged each other and didn't fight with each other and try to beat the other person to win, like how much more fun would life be? Another benefit is that we know that cooperation is way less stressful than competition. We know that another person's success doesn't have to diminish our own success. I read one place that said, blowing out somebody else's candle doesn't make your candle burn any brighter. And I was talking to somebody between the services and they pointed out something I hadn't even thought about and I thought it was a great point. Is I think it helps us with patience too, right? Because, you know, when you're in solitary, you don't know what's in your deck. You don't know what's coming up. And so often in our life, like the reason we're jealous is because they have something that we want and we want it now. And God's not saying no, God's just saying not yet. It's in your deck, it's coming. Just be patient and wait for the card to come up that you need. It's there. You don't know it's there, but it may be coming. So if we look at it that way, it can help us with patience. And the final benefit that I think from this is like if we live our lives this way, I think it'll go noticed in a good way. Like if you're in your workplace and something good happens to somebody and everybody else in the lunchroom is rumbling, and you say, hey guys, let's be happy for them. Be like, what do you mean? It's so contrary to what we're used to. It's so contrary to how our hearts work and how people work. But if we can be that person, we can say, no, let's celebrate each other. That's great. Good for them. People look and they'll say, what do you have? How are you able to look at that and be happy for them? So I want to close with this thought. Is if you remember nothing else from the message, I want to give you a point to remember. Next time you're in your life and you something good happens to somebody and you feel this jealousy and selfish ambition start to rise up in your heart. If we can all remember this thought, I think it would really help. When it comes to someone else's wins, cheer, don't jeer. When it comes to somebody else's wins, we don't have to boo them. We don't have to do what we can to make their win not count. We don't have to do anything we can to compete with their win. We don't have to jeer them. When it comes to somebody else's wins, we can cheer them. Why? Because Jesus says that we are to love others as he has loved us, without jealousy and without selfish ambition. I really think if we can all live our lives like this, then we can really take some positive steps in addressing jealousy and selfish ambition in our life. I'll pray for us. Father, we are so thankful for the example that Jesus set for us on the cross, God. Loving us unconditionally and loving us so much that he went through things that we can't even imagine, God, in the most selfless and sacrificial act that we can think of, God. I pray, Lord, that we can use that that example 
and the command that we are supposed to love each other like you have loved us, God, to just really address these sins of jealousy and selfish ambition in our lives, God, so that we can be fans of each other and we can encourage each other and we can support each other and we can look at our lives like a game of solitaire, God, where we are focused on playing the best hand that we can with what you have given us, God. Lord, we love you so much. We're so thankful for your son. It's in all these things in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, that's our time together. I hope everybody has a safe and happy 4th of July. See you next time.